Okay, let's turn together to Luke's Gospel. As we've been studying through Luke together, this morning we're going to finish up the 18th chapter. So if you'll turn with me to Luke 18, beginning in verse 31, and we're going to make our way down through the remainder of the chapter. And if you're at Luke 18 and verse 31, would you stand together with me out of reverence for the Holy Scriptures, that God would give us reverent hearts again in our country for His Word. wonder what would happen. Luke 18, beginning in verse 31, regarding Jesus, it says, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things, and this saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. And then it happened, as he was coming near Jericho, that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Father, we lift before you the scriptures this morning and believing that they're inspired by your spirit and profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness, that as men and women of God, we could be thoroughly equipped for every good work that you have for us during our time here on this earth. So Lord, would you help us now to be alert and attentive and that we would have a prepared heart. Prepare us, Lord, in a way we can't prepare ourselves. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our minister, and that he would speak to each and every one of us what you would have us to hear. Bless your word now, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, for those of us who have done exercise before in some form or fashion, you have come to realize the truth of that old adage, no pain, no gain. And we understand the idea behind that, that in order to accomplish something, to, in order to obtain something, that there needs to be a, a, a measure of persistence, there needs to be a willingness even to endure a little bit of pain, to push out that extra rep, or to, to go for a few extra minutes on the treadmill, or whatever it may be, and that if we're not willing to, to push and endure a little bit of pain with some persistence, then we're probably not going to gain very much as the result. Well, the passage in front of us, to me, pretty clearly illustrates, in a spiritual sense, sort of the same thing. That there was a need for some 
persistence, and, and even pain, of course, as we see in the life of Jesus, in order for there to be something gained. Of course, it was the pain that Jesus Christ endured, as we see described in those first few verses, that gained him the, the, the right justly, even as God, to be able to offer to us the forgiveness of our sins and the opportunity to have eternal life and through what Jesus endured and what he persisted in the plan of God and the pain he suffered, we are really the ones who gain the most because we have the freedom now to have our sins forgiven and the hope of eternal life if we come to Jesus and receive really the rewards of, of his pain and his persistence to obey the will of the Father. And then, of course, we have in the next section this encounter Jesus has with this man. Mark tells us his name in his gospel is Bartimaeus, who we find reaching out to Jesus. And then, remember, you see them resisting him, trying to stop him. But this guy with just kind of a tenacity and a, a spiritual persistence as he cries out all the more. And he, he presses through. And as a result, he ends up being rewarded tremendously and, and blessed by the work of Jesus Christ. In his life. Look with me again back in verse 31 as we move into this next section. It just tells us at this point that Jesus, verse 31, it says, took the twelve, that is the twelve disciples, whom he chose to later become his apostles, he took those twelve aside. So we're getting close now to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, where he would die on the cross. Uh, for our sins at Passover time. And at this point, Jesus, it says now, takes the twelve, the apostles, who ultimately would take over his ministry after he rose from the dead and ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And it seems now he wants to share with them some important things once again regarding himself. So he pulls them temporarily away from the crowds, the everyday activities, to spend some quality time alone with them that they might be just alone with him, away from everything and everyone else, so that he could be able to share some important truths, to deposit some things into their souls regarding himself and who he is. In the same way, I think the Lord does the same on occasion with us. He, he has to sometimes take us aside, whether it's quietly in the morning every day or at night. He, he wants to take us aside, or whether it's away on a, a retreat for a day or for a weekend. He wants to take us aside and share to us some important things regarding himself on occasion. And we see Jesus now pulling aside the twelve to really give them some personal insights. And we see in verse 31 what he wanted to share with them. He took the twelve aside and said, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And he says, And all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. So Jesus informs them on this journey to Jerusalem, and they had been to Jerusalem before. This is toward the end of his three-and-a-half-year public ministry. On this particular journey to Jerusalem, Jesus says to celebrate the Passover feast. He says, on this occasion, many of the prophecies written regarding the Son of Man will now be fulfilled. They'll be brought to their completion. There will be an accomplishment of the prophecies. The Son of Man, of course, as we've said before, is a well-known Jewish title for the Messiah, for the promised deliverer and Savior that God had told the Jews that he would bring. Interesting, it seemed to have been the favorite title that Jesus often used for himself. 
Oftentimes, this was the title he would use to refer to himself because he knew in the mind of the Jews this should trigger in their mind who, in essence, he was trying to reveal to him, reveal to them who he really was, that he was indeed the Savior, indicating he was the Messiah. Now, in the Old Testament, God had given specific predictions hundreds in fact over 300 if you go through and scan it out and calculate over 300 specific predictions or prophecies God gave in the Old Testament scriptures regarding the first coming of the Messiah or the promised Savior to this world specific facts regarding his birth how we would be born of a virgin where we would be born in Bethlehem, specific details, predictions regarding his birth, his life, his ministry, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. And the incredible thing that only God could do is as Jesus came to this earth in his first coming, he fulfilled each and every one of those 300 plus predictions perfectly. Now, no human being entering into this earth could accomplish something like that other than that God's direct stamp and involvement would be involved. We could say, hey, let's, let's throw out their 10, 15 predictions about this person, who they are and where they'll be born. And, and we, we couldn't even possibly get close to doing something like that in that ratio. 300 plus specific predictions in the Old Testament alone regarding the first coming of Jesus. And when he came, every single one of them he fulfilled accurately. And Jesus is now at the last stages of his ministry. And he now says to the disciples in verse 31 that all things written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man, he says, will be accomplished. Notice those two statements together, those two phrases. All things written regarding the scriptures, the Bible, the Old Testament, all things written, last three words, will be accomplished. All things written will be accomplished. Please take note that God is very persistent when it comes to fulfilling His Word. That there's a tremendous persistency in the heart of God our Father in regards to what He has declared and written in His Word. It does not matter what it takes or how God has to go about the events. What God has written in His Word, it will be accomplished. Much of it has been accomplished and what still remains will be accomplished as well. Jesus was assuring them that God would see to it that no matter what it took, that all the events that the scriptures spoke of regarding his life would be fulfilled and accomplished. Now, in relation to the world that we live in, unlike all the reliable words, all the lies, all the promises that are never followed through on, all the wrong predictions, all these things that we deal with, people saying things in vain, promising one thing and then never delivering, it gives a tremendous contrast to what God is like. God is not like a man. The Bible tells us that God is not a man that he should lie. In fact, the Bible tells us that God cannot lie. In other words, God can't, even if he wanted to, because of who he is in his very essence and his nature, it doesn't just say God won't lie. The Bible says God cannot lie. He, he can't do it. It's something he actually doesn't have the capacity to do. He cannot lie. 
So everything that God has spoken, God will be 100% reliable. He's been 100% reliable so far throughout history, and you can guarantee that everything that is written in the Word of God, even in relation to the second coming of Jesus, will come to pass. And Jesus is assuring those he's speaking to, the disciples, saying, look, whatever it takes, he says, you can rely on the Scriptures. All things written, he says, will be fulfilled. Now, that's important for us to remember even this morning because what you are holding in your laps this morning, and I hope that you're holding a copy of the Scriptures, and if you borrowed a copy, please keep the copy if you don't have a copy because that is the most reliable, tangible, anyway, the most reliable thing on this planet is the Word of God. This is the most reliable resource any human being can possess on this planet because it is completely accurate. It's 100% reliable. And, and what happens in our culture and in our world, the value of it can't diminish. It's not like a, you know, a business plan. You've got to go back and recalculate it because of this or that. It's not like promises and commitments that people make and then they say, well, I really wanted to keep that promise, but now I'm going to... The Word of God is 100% reliable. The percentage of its accuracy, 100% absolute, reliable. That's why it is the most important thing to build your life on. Listen, don't build your life on the advice you get from books and magazines and counselors. Build your life on the reliability of what the Word of God says and you can't go wrong. It's full. You don't even need to take out insurance if you got the Word of God in regard because God's Word, it is assurance in its, very, in its very essence. Everything it says Jesus says, what is written will be fulfilled. And that pertains to the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is soon about to happen as well. And notice Jesus is laying out the events ahead of time, what will take place with his life. He foreknows and predicted exactly what happened before it did in verses 32 and 33, which only validates all the more the authenticity of who Jesus is. Because Jesus said in advance, this is what's going to happen specifically to me. These are the exact events. He said it, and then he fulfilled it, validating that Jesus indeed is who he said he was, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And again, not the first time, but again, we find Jesus in verse 32 and 33, we find Jesus again restating regarding himself. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem and all things that are written, he says, they're going to come to pass. He says, verse 32, for I will be delivered to the Gentiles. So Jesus knew that the Jewish people were ultimately going to turn him over to the Romans and that the Gentiles would be involved in his arrest and then ultimately his death trial. He says, And I will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. So Jesus knew that he was going to be disgraced, that they were going to mock him and insult him and falsely accuse him and spit literally on the very Son of God in human flesh. And Jesus says, on top of that, they will scourge me. Scourging him was that horrible punishment that they would inflict where they, with a, a cat of nine tails, would whip someone with a, a leather whip that had pit, bits of, of bone or lead and glass in it, and it would lay down the lash, and as they yanked it back, it would literally rip the flesh off the body of its victim and Jesus knew that this is what he would undergo and ultimately he says as well that they would kill him. He knew that he would be crucified in this process. Now please take note, what an amazing thing it is to consider 
that Jesus knowing in advance that he would experience all those things as a part of the plan of God for the salvation of our souls, that Jesus knowing all of that in advance still courageously walked into that obediently and willingly. That Jesus, fully aware, persisted in fulfilling this plan. Why? Because he loves you. What you read right there is because Jesus loves you. I mean, consider, just for a moment, consider the fact, this is God. God, with all power, the God that's been keeping every one of our hearts beating while we're sitting here Worshipping and having a Bible study. God who's keeping us breathing involuntarily with muscles. You have no... This is God who's holding everything together. A God of all power. A God who could do anything. Just let go and everything would just erupt. We would all drop that. This is God with all power. And this is the innocent Son of God. Sinless. And yet He allowed. He, he purposely walked into... The very things that we describe here. Let himself be falsely accused. He let himself be mocked. He let himself be insulted. He let himself be spit on. That's about one of the most degrading things. He let himself be spit on. And then he let himself be scourged. And he let himself be crucified. He became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. One of the most painful forms of execution. All for one reason. Because he loves you and he loves me. And he knew that would be necessary to provide salvation. And he took the pain and the punishment so that we could escape the pain and the punishment when we were the guilty ones. What an amazing concept to realize the love of God for you and me. And Jesus added in the third day, he said, I will rise again. And please take note of that. He says, and after that, the third day, after he's put to death, the third day he predicted in advance, I will rise again. I'm going to rise from the dead. Jesus assured that he was going to come back to life, which reminds us Jesus was not a victim of circumstances. Please don't ever think that, that Jesus was caught off guard by all this. Jesus was cooperating in all this. He said, I'm going to let all this happen, and the third day I'm going to raise myself from the dead. Jesus was no victim of circumstances. He was submitting to this, and all these events were necessary, and he's trying to tell the 12 disciples in advance, listen, these are the things that are going to happen. And I want you to know them and be aware of them so that when they do, you'll respond rightly. I'm telling you in advance so that when you see it happening, you'll realize this is the plan of God. I'm giving you insight in advance so when it happens, you respond appropriately. Well, look at verse 34. As they hear these things, it says, They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they did not know the things which were spoken. Now, he had said these things multiple times. But what you have transpiring here is this. Unfortunately, because the 12 disciples, understandably so, they didn't want things to go this way. They had their own plan and idea of what their agenda they would prefer to be for the Messiah when he came. And this totally contradicts what they would perceive the Messiah should do and what they would prefer the Messiah would do when he came. So because of that, they're having trouble grasping and accepting what Jesus is saying regarding his suffering and the spitting on him and the mocking and the putting to death. Notice, in fact, the Holy Spirit in verse 34, it's not like, again, God is, is struggling with redundancy. 
purposely, notice three different ways. They understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them and they did not know the things which were spoken. The Holy Spirit is trying to really emphasize that they weren't grasping this. I think what he's really trying to show us is that they really didn't want to grasp this. Again, their agenda and their idea of what they expected for as Messiah, this wasn't according to their prayer. They wanted a political Messiah. They wanted somebody who was going to take charge with, and just with great military might and political prowess that would be able to just whimsically sweep the nation back together in Israel and overthrow the Roman government and, and get us a good, strong political king on the throne and he'll overrule and solve all the problems with Rome. And that's not what Jesus' agenda was. That was what their preference was. That was how they preferred and how they thought in their own mindset that it would be best if Messiah would do things this way. And because they did not want to hear such things as a direct result, it didn't fit their agenda, what ends up happening? Because it didn't fit their agenda, their ideas and the way they preferred things to go, as a result, you see, they didn't understand what the Lord was trying to truly say to them what God's plan was. And can I say by way of application, often if we are too attached to our own agenda of how we think things should go, the great danger in being overly attached to our own agenda of how we think should go should go will actually at times hinder our ability from being able to really see and hear the way things God intends things to go. And lots of times his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. And we need to be careful in our lives. Don't let your own ideas, sometimes they're accurate, sometimes I am way off base, but don't let your own ideas, your own preferences and your own perceptions of this is the way it should go be the thing that actually blinds you from being able to see the way God intends for things to go. The way God is purposely trying to accomplish something and just because it doesn't fit the downside is sometimes we can blind ourselves and we miss what God's doing because we, this, is, this is the way it should go. And we're so attached to that and God says, well, that's the way you think it should go, but it's going to go this way. And you're going to miss it if we're hanging on to our own thing. And like the disciples, we're going to miss what God's really doing if we're trying to fit it into the way that we think God, things God should work it. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this, Trust in the Lord, right, with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Trust in the Lord. Don't lean on your understanding. Lord, I trust you. This is what I'm thinking, but Lord, if you have another idea, agenda, or a way you want to accomplish this, Lord, help me to have a, a light grip on my ideas, preferences, and agendas and be willing to be open to how you want things to go and just let him direct, let him lead. We're supposed to simply follow and see what he is doing and get in cooperation with it. Well, verse 35, this event now happens as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. It says, as it was, as he was coming near Jericho, that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. So on his way up to Jerusalem, Jericho, again, whether this is the old or new Jericho, and there were both in that day, even as in Israel to this day, there's you know, an old and new Jerusalem. There, there's an old Jericho and a new Jericho, somewhat situated close to each other, both about 18 miles or so from Jerusalem. And as Jesus is en route now, notice, 
it says, as he was on his way to Jericho, that he encounters now a certain blind man who sat by the road begging. So Jesus and his disciples are on the way up to Jerusalem. As they come to the area of Jericho, it's not just them. There would also be thousands of people as Passover crowds and pilgrims were making their way up for this mandatory feast there at Jerusalem. You notice in verse 36, it even tells us that there was a multitude passing by that the blind... So the, picture in your mind here like a parade procession or maybe the beginning of a marathon or a race. You have this great multitude moving along this roadway near Jericho. And Jericho was a heavily trafficked area. It had lots of merchants and travelers and military personnel, a busy area. And you have this multitude of thousands of pilgrims going up for the mandatory feast. And it's at this point, Jesus now meets the man in our account who it tells us was a certain blind man who sat by the road begging. So two things we see about this guy. First of all, he's blind. And secondly, it tells us that he was a beggar. Now, important to realize, in that day, in the ancient culture, blindness was a tremendously debilitating problem. They didn't have schools for Braille. They didn't have opportunities to be able to, you know, get assistance, you know, because of the limitations. So when somebody was blind in that culture, it was tremendously debilitating. Most of the work in that day was agricultural. People out working in farms and doing manual labor. So if you were blind, you were really limited in what you could do to work and to supply for yourself and to provide. It was a very debilitating condition. You either had to depend completely upon your family to care for you, or the only other option was to be placed somewhere near the side of a busy road where lots of people are going by and to beg for your existence and to hope that because of your misery and the condition you appear to be in and the generosity of other people, to just hope that if you begged that they would every day give you at least something to supply you, to get you to get by, and survival was based on this desperate form of begging. Think about this blind man's condition. He lived his life in total darkness. Total darkness. Here he is, every day he spends his life in total darkness, begging, searching for something to supply his needs and his personal fulfillment. And there he is, destitute. He's totally unable to help himself or to change his situation. And as I look at this blind man, he becomes a fitting picture of humanity. Because the Bible tells us that before somebody accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that the unconverted soul is blind spiritually. Paul tells the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, he says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. So the Bible says that when people choose not to believe, it allows the devil the opportunity to create a blindness spiritually, that the devil pulls the shade down in front of their eyes. The God of this age, the devil, has blinded the minds of those who don't. That's why when you try and share the gospel with your co-workers, your friends, or your relatives, and, and you may give the most accurate, clear presentation of, of what it means to know Jesus Christ and, and you say, well, look, do you understand? Would you like to accept Jesus Christ? No. What? What are you, blind? Yes. They're blind. Because the Bible says that God of the age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. And as long as they choose not to believe, which is their freedom and prerogative by free will, 
they will stay blind. And you're thinking, can't you see? Why, why would you pass this? Because they're choosing not to believe. And because of that, those who don't know Jesus Christ, Jesus says those who don't follow him are abiding in darkness. They're remaining in darkness and spiritual blindness leads people to the same condition as this man. They, they, they live empty and destitute and begging at the well of the world, whether they admit it or not, begging at the well of the world every day of their life trying to find something that will fulfill them. Living in darkness and begging at the well of the world, hoping to find fulfillment and worst of all, they're paralyzed in that condition and they can't help themselves and they can't change themselves and they just sit there begging at the well of the world day after day, day after day in that blindness hoping to find something to fulfill them in their condition. And in the same way, sometimes I think this can even represent the way some Christians live out their lives, especially if they begin to backslide or regress back into a life of sin even after they come to Jesus Christ. Because you know as well as I do, sometimes believers, as we maybe backslide or we allow sin to enter back into our lives, the tremendous downside to that is it begins to blur our perspective. And, and we begin to not see as clearly as we really should. In fact, the Bible even tells us that we can become self-deceived, where we deceive ourselves. And sin has a blinding effect upon us. And where we can find ourselves in a place where Paul says, those who need to come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. And if we leave some sin undealt with in our life, or we're living in sin and choosing to return into the darkness, our perspective begins to get a little distorted. Tragically, we can get to the place where we're so blind we don't even see the condition we're in. We become self-deceived. And what we do is just like this, man, we go back and start begging at the well of the world. Here we have all the privileges and prerogatives of the kingdom of God and we become so blind and so ensnared, we're back begging at the well of the world, trying to satisfy ourselves again. Well, listen, whatever condition, whether the unconverted soul or the Christian who's become blinded by their sin and backslidden, the wonderful thing is there's always hope and help available. And guess who? Jesus. If we're willing, like the smart man in this story, to reach out to Jesus, there's hope, there's deliverance, and there's help to get out of any condition. Verse 36 tells us that as this man heard the multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So he's blind, which means his hearing, guess what, is ultra-sensitive. So he hears this crowd going by that day, and as he's listening, he probably noticed there's a unique buzz and vibe about this crowd. This wasn't just like any other crowd going by. He's thinking, there's something unique happening here. It says that he asked, hey, what does this mean? What's going on? So he's inquiring. He senses something unique is happening. And what's wonderful is as the direct result of this guy searching for an answer, he gets way more than he ever expected. Here he asks, hey, what's going on? And he's searching for some answers and a direct result of searching for some answers, this guy's whole life changes. And what a great reminder that is of how God rewards sincere seekers. What did Jesus say? Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. He says, for whoever asks, receives. Whoever seeks, if you seek, Jesus said, you'll find. And if you knock, Doors will be opened up to you. This man experienced that literally. He just started out asking. And as a result of the asking, God rewarded him with a tremendous open door and he received something far beyond probably what he ever could have imagined that day. It led to something tremendous. So he's inquiring, hey, what's going on? He's asking those around. Verse 37, the response comes back. Hey, 
It's Jesus of Nazareth. That's what's going on. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So they say, Jesus of Nazareth, who by this point, historically in Israel, everybody was hearing that name. We're towards the end of Jesus' public ministry and everybody had been hearing about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, going around teaching things about the kingdom of God, healing people who had diseases and, and opening the eyes of the blind. So he hears that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, that his very presence is right within proximity of where he's sitting as a blind beggar, empty, living in total darkness, paralyzed in his own personal condition. And no doubt he is beginning in his mind to recognize, wait a minute, this is a critical opportunity. The presence of Jesus Christ is right near me and take note if you would how he addresses Jesus verse 38 he cried out saying Jesus son of David have mercy on me do you notice a title change that happened there verse 37 he was asking hey what's going on what's going on they say oh Jesus of Nazareth this popular rabbi teacher miracle worker he's going by he doesn't yell out Jesus of Nazareth he yells out Jesus what Son of David. What is this man doing? This man is indicating who he believed Jesus was. Son of David was the, 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 the indication the Savior would come through the family line of David. So this man, blind as he was physically, was indicating that he already saw clearly spiritually. As he called Jesus and addressed him, Son of David, he's exercising the reality that I believe you're the Savior. I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you're the promised one. Clearly, this guy, though he never saw anything with his physical eyes, throughout his blindness over the years, he had a heart that was very receptive and open to what he was hearing about the testimonies of this man, Jesus, who was going around Israel in that day. He had heard, no doubt, over the years, the reports and the stories of people talking about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and who he was and what he was doing and how he was healing lepers and how he was speaking things about the kingdom of God and the ways in which he was opening the eyes of other blind people. And in his mind, though he can't see anything, as he's hearing testimonies of changed lives and he knows the truths of the word of God, he's beginning to put the peace together this is the Savior this is the Messiah and I love this story because this man though he never saw anything physically with his own eyes his spiritual sight was way more accurate than lots of people who could see 2020 he saw things clearly which is just a great reminder to each and every one of us though blind he saw and he knew more about Jesus than all the people around him who had physical eyes and could see because faith, really, and spiritual vision has nothing to do with what we actually see with our eyes. The Bible tells us that Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, if we want to see clearly spiritually, it's a heart condition. Because when our heart becomes pure and we say, God, I want to see, show me the truth. The Bible says when our heart is pure, then we see God. People say, well, show me something and then I'll believe. That's not how God works. God says, you believe and then you'll see. That's how the kingdom works. We, I, if I see it, then I'll believe it. God says, no, if you believe, then you'll see it. What The Bible teaches once we believe, then we see. This man didn't get a chance to see anything. 
He believed and his eyes were opened and he realized who Jesus was and he cried out to Jesus saying, Lord, he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Notice, mercy means not getting what we deserve. It's an indication I don't deserve or merit anything. But the attitude of humility this man had, he sensed his condition, he felt his own unworthiness. Maybe he's thinking, you know, I'm blind, but that's the least of my problems. I'm not going to be concerned about the, my eyesight. I could be suffering way. I don't deserve anything. And if, if you would just have mercy on me, whatever you will, he says, just have mercy on me. And he's pleading in humility. Spurgeon said, humility is seeing yourself as God does. And see, humility attracts God. God loves humility. God resists pride, the Bible says, but God loves humility. An attitude of humility always attracts the heart of the Lord. The Bible teaches us that. Hey, remember this. The way to draw out of the well of God's mercy and grace is to lower down the bucket of humility into it. As you lower down the bucket of humility you will receive the grace of God and the mercy of God. This guy's not demanding. In humility, he's crying out, Lord, just mercy, just have mercy on me. And in verse 39, it tells us as he's crying out, those who went before him and that were there, they started warning him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So as he's trying to reach out to Jesus, as he's pursuing Jesus, look what happens. Are we surprised? Everybody in the crowd, they're trying to stop him. He encounters resistance as he's pursuing the Lord. They all tell him that he should be quiet. Again, what were they saying to him? How stern and coarse and harsh were they being to him? But the bottom line is, as he's pursuing Jesus, people are trying to stop him and he's experiencing resistance in his pursuit of the Lord. Much the same as what we all experience. Whenever we are pursuing the Lord Jesus, we should expect that there's going to be resistance. There will always be resistance. The Bible teaches us there are three very powerful forces working independently and in conjunction against each and every one of our lives. That is the world and the flesh and the devil. Independently and many times together, the world which is anti-Christ and anti-God, the, the world system. It opposes and resists your pursuit of God. The flesh, your own sinful nature. I want to pray, I want to read the Word of God, I want to come worship the Lord, but my sinful, selfish, lazy flesh always resists, my spirit's willing, but my flesh is we can always resist the right things that God's leading me to do. And the devil, the spiritual enemy of our soul, is going to work against us in resistance. And we should realize at times when we're going to pursue Jesus, we should expect resistance. shouldn't throw us off guard. We should expect resistance. The important thing is this man shows a great example. As they said, be quiet and try to resist him. Look what verse 39 says. It says, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. You almost sense that the resistance, great personality of this guy, it cranked him up a few nights. Oh, you're not going to stop me from pursuing Jesus. It says he cried out all the more. He was not going to let anything or anyone, for that matter, stand in his way of pursuing and encountering Jesus personally in his own life. And I love this picture, just kind of pressing forward in the pursuit and the causes of Christ. That he cried out all the more. It's almost as if he got more tenacity. He said, Son of David, 
Have mercy on me. He didn't quiet down. He kept going and moving forward. I just love that. Uh, it's a horrible illustration, but it, it almost reminds me of, of like that Rocky Balboa mentality. And I hate using movies as illustrations, but I have a small weakness for Rocky. Maybe it's the short, dweeby Italian thing that I live with. But there's something, you know how Rocky movies are. You know, he's always the underdog. Odds are always against him, but he, yet he's always doing the right thing. And, he st- and I love that one scene, and when I remember which one it was, where he steps up, and then the guy's beaten to a pulp. He's there for the right reasons. He should just lay over and die. And Adrian's saying, just quit, Rocky, quit. And, and what, he walks forward, facing whatever one of the giants he's facing, and, and beat to a pulp, and he says, one more round. One more round. Man, how I wish at times as a Christian I would have the spirit of tenacity that when I'm beaten up and resisted and everything's fighting against me and forcing me to stop and telling me to quit that that I could muster up to say, no, one more round. I got one more round in me for Jesus. I'm not going to give up that easy. Hey, ask yourself this morning, what does it take to stop you in your pursuit of Jesus? What does it take to make you turn back to give up a few harsh and critical words from a crowd some friends making fun of you makes you just turn around and give up pursuing Jesus maybe some trial or difficulty that's brought great discouragement or made it harder to pursue the Lord because some circumstances have got a little harder in your life so hey well it, it just it's getting a little too hard to follow Jesus now because of this or that or you know I'm just too tired or too many commitments or and, and sometimes we use circumstances as a reason we just back off on pursuing Jesus I, don't, I just don't have the time or the energy to read my Bible or pray or go to church or some disappointment Maybe some dream has crashed and it's left you disappointed. Well, don't let that stop you from pursuing Jesus. Don't let anything stop you from pursuing Jesus. Whatever it is, the Bible says that through Jesus we can be overcomers. And isn't that something worth fighting for? It's Jesus. All the more determined with spiritual tenacity. Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. Think what we persist in for other things. You're trying to get an education or go back to school. Man, we'll, we'll put ourselves through tremendous torture trying to get an education or accomplish something in our work field. Or, and we'll persist through things. We'll be sick and tired and resistant and problems. And, and we put a fighting spirit for so many other things in this life, don't we? By golly, Jesus is worth way more than that. Paul, that seasoned saint, told Timothy, look, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Don't let anything or anyone stop you from pursuing Jesus. You keep pursuing Jesus. Despite the resistance, it will happen, but it doesn't have to stop us. We can press through and push forward. And I love this attitude. He just cried out all the more. Look at verse 40. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. Take note of that. This is the only time in the Bible that we have record that Jesus was stopped in his tracks. Only person that ever made Jesus stop dead in his tracks. Jesus saw something. What did he see? He saw humility. He saw a man in desperate need. He saw somebody who had faith. And he saw somebody with spiritual passion. And Jesus stopped right in his tracks. It says, and he commanded everybody to stop. And the Greek there indicates a stern command. The idea is that Jesus commanded everyone, stop what you're doing we are not going anywhere until I address this man. 
We are not doing another. And he stops everybody in the crowd. It's almost as if you sense Jesus saying, I will take time for this man. I love this story because it indicates how Jesus, look at it, he hears one voice, one voice crying out over the crowd. He hears one voice, despite all the noise and racket around him. And Jesus stops and takes time from the bigger thing for one individual. Jesus was all about individuals. He always had time for individuals. Jesus always gave attention to those who had need. The Bible promises us if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. If we draw near to God, that's what this man is doing, he will draw near to us. It's a promise. Oh, I'm so insignificant and I don't matter. And No, you do matter to Jesus. Jesus will stop the whole world show and give time for you because he loves you. And if you reach out to him, he'll respond to you. And let us remember that as Christians who have the heart and spirit of Jesus should be beating inside of us that Jesus stopped everything for one individual. And Jesus put priority upon one individual. Jesus always had time and Lord willing, we will have that same kind of time as well. So when he came near, Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said, receive your sight for your faith has made you well. Jesus, look how he turns the interaction. He gets real personal. Initially, this man is crying out to Jesus, Jesus desperately, but it's really generic. He just says, just have mercy on me. Mercy, Lord, just have mercy on me. And Jesus, like he always does, he goes right to the heart of the issue and he says to him, what do you want me to do for you? Just tell me. Be honest. What do you want me to do for you? And I wonder at times if the Lord doesn't get right to the heart of the issue with us. And sometimes he says to us, potentially he's saying to you, just tell me, Don't be, I'm God. What do you want me to do for you? For you. Tell me what you want me to do for you. And it may be different for all of us. He says, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Maybe for one of us it would be, Lord, that you would, would deliver me from this bondage of what's controlling my life. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, that you would make me the husband that I know I should be that I'm not. That you'd make me the wife that I need to be that I can't be on my own. Lord, that you would open my eyes. I don't know what you want me to do. Would you open my eyes to see what your will is? What do you want me to do for you, Jesus says? Tell him. Tell him specifically. Tell him confidently. This man said, I want to see. And Jesus said, receive. Receive your sight, your faith has made you well. Jesus honored this man's simple faith and his specific and confident request. This was a window of spiritual opportunity and this guy was not going to pass it by. He realized this is a critical moment. I'm going to be responsive to this moment. Jesus said in Revelation 3.8, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. Listen, when there's those divine moments, don't miss it. When there's that moment when you know this is a critical moment, Jesus is saying, what do you want me to do for you? Just tell me right now. Tell me right now and believe and receive what I'll do for you. Don't pass up those windows of opportunity. The Bible tells us that Jesus is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. One man said, faith sees the invisible, it believes the impossible, and it receives the incredible. This story is a great testimony of that. As he received his sight, it said it happened, verse 43, immediately. And notice, it says he followed Jesus 
glorifying God. You know, when you have a true encounter with the Lord, that's always the direct result. No, but interesting, the other accounts tell us that Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. In other words, Jesus didn't bless him to bribe him. Jesus didn't bless him to bind him. Now, I blessed you, now you better follow me. Jesus, in the other account, says, go your way. He's not chasing him away. He's giving him the freedom. I blessed you because I love you. But when Jesus truly opens your eyes and you see Jesus for who he is, guess what? You want to follow him. And you want to glorify God. This man responds. He begins to follow Jesus, glorifying God. And notice when a work of God and a work of Jesus Christ happens, it says all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. When Jesus is working and people see it, you can't help but want to give praise to God for the things that he's doing.